Well, we're in John chapter 11 still. We're leaving there today, I promise. Uh, last week, we kind of took a hiatus and talked about uh, Pentecost, which is such an important day. And if you uh, would like to listen to that, it's uh, going to be up on the website uh, there. You can follow the instructions. Somebody asked me that the other day. I've actually put the instructions here at the top of how you can navigate the website if you'd like to go listen to it or want to hear that. It's on Pentecost and uh, why, we, uh, why we celebrate it, why it's important. Uh, and I know I said I would give you four things. I only gave you three. If you're worried about that, come talk to me later, okay? <clears throat> I, don't, I, don't, I don't roll like that. I don't roll, you know, but if you want to, I'll be glad to. And John chapter 11, uh, we have continued this study or this uh, matter about these conversations with Jesus. Brian, you again, the Gospel of John seems to have the most number of conversations, of interactions uh, with Jesus of any other Gospel. Uh, In many of the other Gospels, Jesus has a lot of interaction with the disciples. But in the Gospel of John, there are a lot of interactions with people that would not be necessarily followers of Jesus. And I think we get some insight and some some, uh, lessons and learning about his life and his ministry for that. Now, in this particular passage we're in in 11, is I've looked at this as kind of the effects of Jesus' presence as disruption. Disruption. Uh, I think sometimes if we're not careful that we get the picture that Jesus is just this mild-mannered, loving person, which He is, uh, but He also, you know, was murdered, (laughs) killed by the state uh, as an insurrectionist, as, if you will, a threat to the state. And so Jesus has a disruptive feature to Him, uh, that when He comes to places where injustice is, things get checked out. Uh, wherever there is uh, illness, uh, he uh, works to, say, to heal. Wherever there is a, a, a lack of concern for the poor, others, he's very concerned. And so there is a disruptiveness to him that I think sometimes we, we, we don't necessarily note. Uh, in, in addition to that, if you're in John chapter 11, uh, one of the most disruptive things, if you will, uh, ever happened was to raise a guy from the dead. <laughs> uh, and again, uh, John records very carefully that, that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days which in Jewish thought, a person isn't dead until after how many days? Three. So y'all, are, y'all are doing well. I, I thought about giving you a quiz today, but um, I'm out of school now. <laughs> Lots of time. Uh, uh, he's dead. There is, in at least Jewish thinking, uh, this process of grieving and going through, that Jesus uh, uh, raises him from the dead. How, you know, how disruptive is that? Uh, I was talking to some students one time, and they were talking about, you know, uh, life and all. And, and, and I said, you know, they were, they were going to get married, and they weren't going to get married. And they thought about, who do we return the toaster to? And I said, don't worry. People want you to be happy, okay? Uh, you know, here Lazarus has been dead, and these people bring in all this food. I'm just thinking this way because I've been on vacation. Why do we bring all this food, <laughs> you know? People want their plates back. They want their lasagna back now. It's disruptive. I, I, some disruptions uh, it can cause problems. When I was in the fifth grade, uh, my dad was a pastor of a small little church in Kilgore, Texas. And I was known to talk occasionally. Uh, my dad so affected. He said to me, son, you were, you, you, you were vaccinated with a phonograph needle. Now, now, if you're under 40, I'll explain it to you later what that means. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Vaccine with a phonograph. So, so I remember this disruption wasn't that good. I remember I was in the fifth grade, and my Sunday school teacher marches me out of the room to my dad, who happened to be the pastor. And she said to him, I'll never forget this, she said, if this 
boy ever comes back, I'm not teaching again. And I remember doing this to my dad like. So if your kids are bugging you, there's hope. I grew out of that, you know, disruption. I, I was a fairly disruptive person. Uh, I, I was having fun. I thought, why can't you have fun at Sunday school? Why can't you talk back? They didn't particularly care for that. Jesus uh, has some disruptive matters here. And, and I want to just ask you to follow along with me here in verse 45 in chapter 11 now. You're there. After Jesus has raised him from the dead, Lazarus, therefore many of the Jews, I'm at verse 45, came to Mary and saw what he had done and believed in him. But some went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? I mean, you can almost hear the panic in their voices, in, in this idea of this guy has raised somebody from the dead after four days. This is going to be hard to deny. What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. Now, you might want to underline that. that there's an admission here that is he is, not that he was, he is performing many signs. And in Jewish thought and understanding with the Messiah, one of the things that would happen when the Messiah comes is there would be many signs and wonders that would happen. Remember I told you last week that on Pentecost, don't, don't worry, I'm not going back. On Pentecost, uh, whenever the law was, uh, or the, the, the celebration of Pentecost celebrates the giving of the law to the Jewish people. On that day, there were signs and wonders of fire and of thunder and of quaking and sounding. And isn't it interesting, on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit comes that is bestowed upon the people of God, the same thing. Signs and wonders. This Jesus is causing people at least to say, maybe this is Him. I mean, listen, what else can the Messiah do that this guy hasn't done? So with many signs and wonders, He's performing. Notice this. And if we let Him go on like this, all men may believe in Him. Now I want to stop right there because I want to look at this. He says, if we let Him go on, all men might believe in him. Isn't it interesting here, at least it's for me, that these people recognize what's happening, understand what is happening, and yet refuse to believe. Now I want, to think about, I want you to think about that for a minute, because I think there's a principle here, that, that this idea, the, the disruption of miracles. I think that's the first one. I didn't give it to you, did I? Here we go. Here we go. The disruption of miracles. Jesus has been doing this and continues to do this. But I, let, me, let me share with my idea here is this. And, and the, these, these religious leaders are concerned that many people might start believing in Him. What's fascinating is these miracles, the disruptive nature of them, they seem to have no effect on the religious leaders. None. None whatsoever. They're admitting them. They recognize them. They see the impact of them that it might cause people to believe. And as we read on, you're going to see it has absolutely no impact on them at all. Yeah, Stan. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a great point here, Stanton. I, he's asking the question for recording is, what's the difference here between the demons who do believe, it says in James chapter 2, and tremble? And I, I want to try to get to that because I think, there's, I think there's something here that we ought to think about that the capacity of human beings to see and hear and know and still not do anything about it to me is disturbing. It's disturbing. I told you before, you know, C.S. Lewis said, God is so great. He is so mighty. He can create a creature that can resist Him. Think about that. He is that great. And this idea of seeing these, as Stanton said, and believing, okay, I know that's true. You know, one scholar said this way, if you read the Gospels, the most orthodox confessions of who Jesus is come from demons. I know who you are. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a demon talking. You know, all of these kinds of things. The question here then for me is this disruptive nature. I would say to you that in the New Testament at least, as I read it at times, that there is a sense in which the condition of a person's heart is more determinative than the miracle that the person sees. Say it again. The condition of a person's heart is more determinative than the miracle that they see. In the book of Mark, if you want to go read it later, for instance, this is my theological basis for this, nobody comes to Jesus or believes in Him because of a miracle. Nobody. Some have suggested that this idea of miracles, with some people it seems to cause faith. With others it doesn't. And in the book of Mark, you cannot find anyone who having seen a miracle, comes to faith. It's the idea that the chief priests and the Pharisees can see what's happening and reject it. Can see it in front of them. I think we, I have at least before, carried the notion that if I saw a miracle or I saw something happen or I believed something or I saw something, that I would believe. You know, Lord, if you just part the Red Sea like you did for the Jewish people, I'd believe. Did that work for them? Did they believe? Did did miracles create lasting, sustaining kinds of faith? I would say no. In fact, it's 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 a, it's fascinating here that if you'll notice here, uh, I just want to drive, uh, go over here a second. Look, it says they're concerned. He's performing signs, and what if we let this go on? Look what look what it says over here in chapter twelve, verse nine. A large crowd of, of the Jews had learned that he was there, talking about Jesus. And they came not to Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus, who's he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to what? Kill Lazarus. Think about that. They're not only going to try to take care of Jesus, they're going to clear the field, they're going to kill Lazarus. This, this is fascinating to me that, that, that even seeing a miracle like this doesn't cause a person to respond appropriately. What is that? What, what's happening? My dad used to say to me every once in a while, we'd get in an argument. He'd say, Cliff, you're like this. You say, don't confuse me with the facts my mind is made up. <laughs> ever made me like that? Yeah. My dad also got me a refrigerator uh, a magnet that said, everybody is entitled to my opinion. This incredible capacity 
of human beings to see and experience and resist and reject. Uh, It's the heart of the matter. Jesus told a parable in Mark 4, if you want to go read it later, that the same seed, which is the Word of God, and the same sower, whoever that would be, did not make any difference in the result. In the parable of the sower, the only thing that makes a difference is the ground. Not the seed, which Jesus says explicitly is the Word of God. He says it explicitly. The seed is the Word of God. And the sower sows the Word. And on one ground, nothing happens. On another ground, it comes up quickly. You, you, you probably read the story. If you haven't, go read it in Mark chapter 4. What's happening there? Jesus is commenting again on this same idea, I think, here. It's the heart that makes the difference. It's our heart. I've told you before at the university, you know, I, I uh, had a, a friend of mine ask me several years ago, I went to another church. And, uh, and this person said to me, they said, how do you go to church every Sunday? Now, I knew what he was saying, and I'm a little bit of a smart aleck. And I said, well, I get in my car and I turn left and I go down that road. He said this to me, he said, you have more education and you have more training in theology than anybody on that staff. How do you go? And I said, because I live with this conviction. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart. He looked at me, I said, don't, don't listen to me now. Watch over your heart. For from it flow the rivers of life. You know, we get so busy watching over everybody else's heart. We get so busy worrying about everybody else. We don't watch over our own heart. And I said to this guy, I said, when I go to church or chapel, I'm not trying to evaluate the pedigree of the speaker or how many degrees they have. A buddy of mine used to say, we need, less, we need more theologians with less degrees and more temperature. That'll get back there in a minute. No. <laughs> You know, that's what we need. And I said, when I go to church, when I'm around the Word of God, brother, I'm telling you, I come to attention. And I say, you know what, Cliff? You better sit up and listen. And you better be open to what's going on. See, these guys see it, they get it, they can articulate it, they understand it, but their heart is so hardened. How's that happened? Let me give you a couple of ways that happens real quick and we'll go on. I think over-familiarity with religious things. I think over-familiarity. <laughs> Becky and I went to visit my mom in Orlando or Florida this week and uh, where the sun was actually shining and the, and the water was in the ocean. I, you know, I've flown for years and, and enjoy it. We, you know, get in there and I, I thought about the familiarity of people Whenever we're about ready to get off, taxi off, the attendants stand up and say, now we'd like your attention here for a minute. We've got a few things we want to go over. Right? Right? You know what everybody's doing? Texting, reading, you know. And, and I'm, I'm listening because I'm just, it, it has always amused me. I almost laughed out loud this time. I think I did. When the, when the, when the attendant says, 
this. Now, in the unlikely event that we lose cabin pressure, which means there's a hole in the fuselage, okay? Let me translate that for you, okay? That means there's a breach or a hole in the plane, okay? In the event that we lose cabin pressure, a mask will drop down and you will take it and pull the cord straight, I guess. Like, I can't remember because I don't listen that closely. It's over familiarity. And, and then you, you take it out. And if you're with a child, you put on, and you put on yourself, and this is when I laughed out loud. And breathe normally. I don't think so. If we just lost cabin pressure and there's a hole in the fuselage and I can see the stars, I'm not breathing normally. I don't care what you got over my face. <laughs> you know. I'm watching people though. And I'm saying, over familiarity. If we ever did lose cabin pressure, it would be, a, I don't want that to happen. It would be amazing to see how many people would freak out and wouldn't know what to do. They hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it. And hear. I tell you, I, I, I did, I'm a little nervous when I fly. I would like to be up there with them and talking to them and say, I think you ought to do this. When we were going, though, I watched the flight plan, and we were flying over the Gulf of Mexico, cutting that short way. I listened with a little more attention to the life raft suggestions. <laughs> Under my seat, you know, it's there. See, when you get around things for so long, especially religious things, over-familiarity breeds contempt. These guys, it's their business. It's their work. We were just talking at our table uh, this morning. A friend of mine, we were talking about this idea. I have a friend who used to pastor a very large church in another state. And things were blowing and going and, and doing great. He believed the doctrine of justification by faith. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. It's by God's grace. And my buddy, who was younger, stopped to ask him and say, how is it with this size of church, and as many times you preach, how is it, when do you find your time for studying God's Word and prayer? And our, our friend said this, oh, I don't have time for that anymore. I'm too busy. It wasn't two years later that guy's life completely came unglued. You know, we just get too familiar. We, we, at times, we will just be so busy with life and manners that our heart gets hardened. Or we get so used to it. Yeah, tell me something else. Have you noticed that? You can see and understand like these guys and believe it and have no impact. Watch over your heart. That's what the psalm, the proverb says. Watch over your heart. Maybe, maybe this week you, you might want to kind of come to attention when you read God's Word. Maybe, maybe this week when, when you get ready to pray, maybe, maybe you might come to a little more attention, attentive to say, you know what, I'm, a, I'm about to talk to the God of the universe. Maybe, maybe I ought to come to attention. Maybe, maybe when you go to church today to say, uh, you know, I've heard these songs over and over again. But, but maybe I ought to come to attention 
and look at those words and, 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 and sing them and, and listen to them and, and allow them to do something in me. See, over-familiarity, over-familiarity is a dangerous thing to happen in religion. Gary? Or when you become an expert. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I'll tell you one of the things that I've had, part of that is, is these guys are kind of my guys. I, that's what I do for a living. And Becky knows, and I've practiced this, that when I attend a small group or a Sunday school class or a meeting, I will not talk. I know that sounds so crazy. <laughs> Ask my family. They know. I won't talk. It is extremely dangerous for me to always be in a position to have an opinion. It's very dangerous for me to always have to make a correction or an opinion. Now that's me. I'm not saying that to anybody else. I'm just saying that to me. That this idea of the heart, so watch over. I, I've got, look, I think I've got this uh, quote on here. If the computer, this is from uh, uh, Pascal, the great French uh, theologian, said, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. You know, we get driven like that at times. Our heart, if it gets hard or gets drawn away, the heart has its reasons. That's why this, the, the proverb says, watch over it. I mean, you look at the, To me, these guys are just, it, it's just unbelievable that, that they could be, if you will, that messed up. And know it. Now, let me, let me move this on. We gotta, I want to try to get done here a little bit. Uh, I gave you some application. So the disruption of position. Look what it says here in verses 48 to 53. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe it, and the Romans will come and take our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who has high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. These guys must have been a lot of fun to be around. You know? He's saying to this, his own, you don't know anything. Nor do you take into account expedient that one man should die for the nation and not the whole nation perish. I'm, I'm fascinated by this because I see these leaders, I, I see some of this in me. You see, Jesus will disrupt position. Let me explain to you this way. Here's an idea. One of the, one of the greatest truths I ever learned in, leader, in, in studying leadership is this. People do not resist change. I know, the, I know you've heard that all your life. They don't. People do not resist change. People resist loss. Whenever a change causes there to be the possibility of loss, people resist it. You know, I, example I use with... The church I grew up in, and, uh, you know, when churches change maybe the worship style, you know, that, that's happened here in different places. You know, you'll have people that love hymns, and, and that's great, and you have other people love worship songs, and, and that's great. And what'll happen sometimes, a, a person that maybe has played the organ or, or something, you know, or, or an instrument uh, in, in the service, and because of the change, 
we don't need you anymore. Thank you, but we don't need you anymore, right? You know, without using that instrument. And we sometimes are so harsh on people because they resist it and they don't want it and they don't like it and they'll let you know. You know why? We've taken away from them a way, it's not the only way, at this one, we've taken away from them a way for them to use their gifts to honor and please God. We never think about the loss. When people resist change or or they seem to get resistant, we just say, well, you're just an old fogey or you're just, you know, you're old. And I am. You know, well, you're just old and you're just stuck. No, 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 no. Listen, people resist loss. We all do, don't we? You don't resist change. If your boss came to you next week and said, you get two more weeks of vacation and 5,000 more dollars. Oh, I hate change. I'll take it. You don't, you, you don't hate change. You hate loss. These guys reflect, in my mind, at least in some sense, the fact that Jesus, I mean, you said this as is, is best I know how, said this way. These guys know that with Jesus, there is no rival. He is going to take their place. I was thinking this the other moment I woke up, I thought, Cliff, what's your place? What's your place, Cliff? If it's a college professor, I could lose that. You know, they have me closest to the door to the exit to the parking lot. What's my place? If I define myself, if I understand my place is I am a college professor. One of these days they're going to come and say it's time for you to go. Then what? Or my place at the church is a Sunday school teacher, an elder. If you guys decide someday, hey, we don't think we need somebody else, you know, what? will I fight that? See, my place is a child of God. He's my dad in authority over me. And I'm his... Now listen, Ken Smith and I have talked about this over and over again. He used to teach as trained medical students. He has an exercise he takes them through. What if you lose this? 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 What if you lose... Where are you then? What's your place? When I was working on this, I, I, I thought about this. I thought, you know, this is where Jesus gets disruptive. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to die to a self-directed life, take up your cross, and you're going to follow me. You're going to take the place. I don't like that place. (laughs) See, these guys say, look, if this goes on, the, the Romans are going to come and take away our place. I want to drill down on this a little bit. What's your place? That you say, I, I can't give up. Let me tell you a story. Dennis Kinlaw, who's a brilliant Old Testament scholar I've known over the years. He's about 90 years old, still the best preacher I've ever been around. Dennis was uh, doing a devotional at an at a army kind of place where guys were getting sent out uh, for uh, duty. And a young man came up to him and said, uh, Dennis, 
uh, I would like, he said, I want to become a Christian. And Dennis asked him why. I, that's just Dennis Kinlaw. Well, why? You know, not, hey, hallelujah. Why? He's a brilliant guy. He said that he did not want to go to hell. And Dennis said to him, this might not be the noblest reason for you to get saved. <laughs> but he agreed it would be a good idea not to go to hell. <laughs> so Dennis said to this young man, okay, now give your life to Jesus. And the soldier hesitated and stiffened. And he said, I can never do that. Are you sure that a man has to give his life to Jesus to be a Christian? Dennis said he turned to the pages of the New Testament and the young man said, I already got plans for my life. Dennis Kinlaw said he wanted to shake that young man's hand because he said, I've been working with church people all my life who believe that they can keep their own plans in their own way and still be a Christian. He said the honesty was refreshing. Jesus comes to us to say, Take your place, Cliff. Take your place. What is it? My place is a child of my heavenly Father. My plans are His plans. Now, I'm, I'm going I'm to run this out because I've I got to tell you this. I, I went to a conference a few months ago and I want to tell you how this works because some of y'all are feeling the weight of this, aren't you? Got to sell my business today. If you do bring your car by my house, I'll give you a good deal. <laughs> I'm not talking about that. See, these guys are worried about their place and their position. And I'll just say this. Jesus has no rivals. He has no rivals. He's the one. Over the years, I've taught that and believed that. But when I've taught it, I think I've taught it in such a way that it sounded like a demand. Right? The, the cost of discipleship. To coin Bonhoeffer. It was a demand. You have to give your place. Let Jesus take your place. I went to this conference and I've read this parable for years. It's found in Matthew 13, 44. It's the parable of the, of the young man, well not young man, the, the guy that finds a treasure in a field that he doesn't own. Now first of all, let's say the guy's trespassing. This is a little troubling to me. What's the guy doing digging around in my land? Jesus told disruptive stories, folks. Think about this. This guy's walking through the field. He doesn't own. He's digging around. And he finds a treasure. That's disruptive. You shouldn't be doing that. Jesus says he finds that treasure, sees it, and realizes there is no way I can buy this treasure. No way. What he did was, covered another disturbing thought, he covers it up doesn't go tell the landowner, hey man, have you been over here? And No. He goes into town and he makes a deal. He knows he can't buy the treasure, but he can buy the land. So he goes and the Bible says he sells all that he has for joy. Listen to me. No one should ever let Jesus take the place who doesn't do it for joy. If Jesus isn't the treasure, don't you even try this. Don't you even try to say, well, you know, I don't want to go to hell and I want to live, but I better let Jesus take my place and run my life. No, listen, you'll be a miserable, calculating Christian all your life. 
Until you see Jesus as the treasure. Until you see Jesus as the treasure that for joy you go and sell everything you have. And say, you know what? That treasure is worth everything I have. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to go buy it. And that will be the joy of my life. See, this guy Kenlaw was talking to, he didn't see the treasure. I've asked myself, has my understanding of Jesus taking my place, of me assuming that right, is that a demand or an offer? Folks, it's an offer. Listen, if, if we see Jesus as the treasure, the value of the treasure means that that guy saw so much value in it, he sold everything that he had for joy. Not, well, you know, I better be a Christian or I could go to hell. No. I wrote in my notes and I've said to Becky, I will never, ever again, ever ask anyone to make, G- to make Jesus the ruler of their life for Him to take the position of no rival until they see Jesus as the treasure. You see Him that way? You know what? It, it's going to be tough, tough, tough to give up your place if He isn't the treasure. It's going to be tough to surrender. It's going to be tough to have no rival in your heart and life. If you don't see Him as the treasure. Jesus said, that's what the kingdom of God is like. So I'm telling, when I'm talking to people now, I'm just trying to find out, do you see Jesus as the treasure? If you do, I don't have to twist your arm and scare you to death and tell you some sad stories. If you see him as the treasure, you'll say, hey, you know what? This is so important. This is so bad. I'll sell everything I've got. Instead of saying, well, I guess we're going to have to sell that vacation home if we're going to be a Christian. If you do, sell it to me. <laughs> I don't live in that kind of bondage. <laughs> How else, how else can you say, I will die to myself, I will take up my cross, and I will follow you? If it's just a business deal or a calculation, or because you feel so guilty, it'll never work. It'll never work. That's why my dad used to say a lot of Christians look like they've been drinking sour pickle juice. Yes, I'm trusting the Lord and going to heaven somehow. Right? When we worry about our position, like these guys, we don't see Jesus as the treasure. I I, I want to recommend a book to you. It's called The Jesus Manifesto by Lynn Sweet and Frank Viola. The Jesus Manifesto. And their argument is just absolutely online. It says that the crying need of the church is a majestic, an exalted, a wonderful view of Jesus as the treasure. Nobody wants your religion. Nobody wants your church. Nobody wants your disciplines. And I'm talking to me. 
What they do want is the majestic, wonderful, amazing Jesus. So this guy asked a guy I know in Canada, so if I'm a follower of Jesus now, can I just sin all I want to? Augustine said, God will change your want to. (laughs) See, when Jesus becomes the treasure, He changes your want to. I want to please Him now. It's not an external thing, it's it's an internal thing now. Are, Are you afraid of losing your place? Am I? I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking... Am I afraid of losing my place? If I am, and if we are, I want to suggest it may be. There may be other... I'm not, I'm not trying to simplify it just to this idea. It might be that we need a reacquaintance with Jesus as the treasure. That we will sell everything we have. You know why that guy did that? He knew that that treasure was immeasurably more valuable than what he had. He knew that treasure was immeasurably more valuable than what he had. When we see Jesus like that, when we understand, these guys didn't see him like that. Their heart was hard. They'd gotten so familiar. But when when, when we see Jesus like that, then we willingly cooperate. We willingly surrender. We willingly give. I read a story. I'm going to finish. I read a story several years about some missionaries that this was at the turn of the 20th century, so they're still going over on boats. It used to be that when missionaries went uh, overseas, especially, that they took their own casket. They were all in, they weren't coming home, and they weren't coming back until they were in the casket. And so missionaries would board the ship with their own casket to carry. I read an account of some of these guys that were going into some very difficult areas. And after having everything stowed away, they stood on the bow of the ship and began to sing of the great privilege that it was to give their life for Jesus. Not because they were afraid of going to hell. Not because their guilty conscience ran the show. And that everything that they did had to pass muster with a guilty conscience. But they had seen Jesus as the treasure that was worth everything. Don't try this if you don't see Him as a treasure. Please don't. Please don't. Please don't try to deal with this thing about position. Ask God to reveal Himself to you. I told you a few weeks ago, I want you to keep praying this. Ephesians 1, 15 and 16 where Paul says, Having heard of your faith and your love of the Lord Jesus, I pray unceasingly. That He, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's what we need. 
We need the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That you don't get, you can't, you can't create that. You, you can't figure that out. You, you have to have the, I, we have to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That the eyes of our heart might be opened. That we might see the hope of His calling. The immeasurable inheritance in the saints, that's us. And the surpassing greatness of His power to those of us who believe. Man, is that worth giving your life to? Is that worth saying, you can have my place. This little monkey fiddling. I said, you know, listen, I told him that when I die, I hope it's not soon, but when I die at the university, you know what they'll do? They'll have a funeral. Becky will get, be getting lots of money. People be lining up to date her. They'll come back. They'll have a chicken dinner. The gospel bird. You hadn't heard that? Oh my. They'll have a chicken dinner. They'll say, what a great guy and wasn't it wonderful and wasn't it great he was here for however many years? And they'll say, have we got any new resumes? Look. That place needs to be given up for the real place. For the real place. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need your help. Our problem is we don't see clear enough. We've been around this stuff maybe too long. It's too familiar. But we ask today that this disruptive nature of Jesus might take hold in our lives. My life, Lord. I'm I'm not praying this prayer for everybody else. Lord, I'm praying for me as well. Oh, please, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. The eyes of our hearts might be opened. Let us live each day in the joy of the treasure that is worth more than anything else we have. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.